to wrap that chat. <laughs> um, okay. Hi, and welcome to Contracast. My name's Kat Boyd, and I'm joined with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Fine. Um, we also have another, uh, well, not another guest, just a guest. And we have Robert Salmoney, who is a journalist um, uh, with Scotia. I'm really rubbish at introducing people, so you're probably better having a go yourself. Um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a, a journalist. I'd probably say sort of um, arch propagandist for Putin's regime. Um, <laughs> I've also accepted payment from the Ayatollahs as well. They tend to pay better than Russia. Um, because obviously, you know, you've got connection with oil there as well. So, of course. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, sort of been writing for about seven, well, probably about eight years. And then I've been involved for about seven years. So it's, uh, I've got to a position where I'm kind of more in the think tank business than in the writing article business now. Unlike David, who's actually a, you know, bona fide writer. I wouldn't say that, man. I, it's just more propaganda, to be honest. And I agree with your, um, approach of riding on more than one evil regime at once because you never know when one of those is going to get flattened you know what i mean but, by america yeah or some sort of james bond type entity you know you never know when the next evil sort of volcano dwelling uh, bond villain is going to get overthrown so you can't just bet on one horse that's a very beautiful segue into the topics for today's pod anti-americanism and we will be discussing scotland's very own james bond and um, that that's alan smith by the way <laughs> <laughs> just in case just in case you were confused there um he is very james bond like he's very kind of like do you know kind of I mean? suave yeah yeah suave and yeah transatlantic um he's got that vibe uh Robert, I like your um, I like your sexy Soviet gym teachers. I won't say what I said before about them. <laughs> no, um, yeah, this is kind of my rebellion against um, against modernity. The, the idea that uh, keeping fit is fascist, when in fact keeping fit is is true to the the uh, natural state of the working class. You know, like I, I was really interested in that. Um, it's kind of partly a joke, but then people took it seriously on Twitter. Of different sections of the left were arguing about whether having muscular thighs or having really strong shoulders and biceps was fascist or left-wing or both because like if you have like really strong biceps and shoulders and it shows that you're connected to the industrial working class but then if you have really strong thighs then that means that you want to goose step over everyone so that's that's the debate that's going along in uh, America, the American left left sphere. This sounds like a like a typically American Twitter left sort of you know uh, high quality conversation. Well, back up. What side are you on? Thighs or like upper body? Yeah, side? I've got neither. So no, babes, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> I know you've got neither, right? But that's not what I meant. I mean, like no, right, that's just that. I, I'm I'm rebelling against um against exercise period. Uh, so I, I'm I'm neither in the fascist nor the communist camp. I'm in the sort of late capitalist liberal degeneration. Do you know what I mean? Just everything's falling apart camp. Um, but you're yeah. I, I, but I agree with uh, <laughs> the the image behind you sort of presenting a, a return to collectivism there, as well as you know 
upper body strength. Well, yeah, it's kind of, you had these um, ideologies in the 20th century who were based uh, on the idea of perfection, of perfection in the human form. And obviously, you know, if you're uh, enamored with uh, individualism and realism, you consider that to be um, verboten, um, no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> my, my, my principle is that you, you should never skip leg day. So I'm actually more on the sort of thick thighs side of things. So. Yeah, I don't really know what leg day is. Like, is that a day that you work out the muscles in your legs? I find yeah, this whole Yeah, because you don't, you don't want to be an upside-down triangle where you just got these, like, head and shoulders and, like, want you to weed your asparagus legs. Like, so, so is the point that, like, if you've got, like, muscular broad shoulders that you're connected to the industrial working class because you, I guess, have, like, a manual labour job? Is that the point? Yeah, it's all part of that aesthetic of... You probably swing something to operate machinery that you'd use with your upper body. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Like, I get that, mate. Oh, I think, I think I've just got a delivery that's come. <laughs> Let's go get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. The background to this is we were supposed to start recording this earlier, and now uh, Robert's have to, had to go off and get his takeaway. I have to say, you don't get a body like those guys by eating pizza. <laughs> and he is getting a pizza as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's setting me up for the night. Nicely done. Um, going, back, going back to our sort of fitness and um, yeah. Alan Smith chat, I think the test of a man on the left is whether you can bench press Alan Smith over your head about 100 times. That's, that's why I'm into the whole gym culture thing, gym bro thing, you yeah? know? Now, David, if you can do that, then I, I'll make peace. I once had an opportunity. Um, this is a, a great story about Alan Smith. Um, I, didn't, I didn't bench press him. Um, but uh, we were holding an editorial meeting for Connor in a cafe in Glasgow. And um, George Kerevin was there. Uh, and all we heard from... Uh, God, do you remember that room? Uh, I'm not going to go into that, right? We, got, we, had a, we had a meeting in a crap room that wasn't so much a room as a hallway, right? In this cafe. And, uh, all, and, and so we were sitting there talking this and that, themes and so on. And from over at the counter, I just heard, George, George. And then into this meeting wanders Alan Smith. Uh, <laughs> oblivious to the fact that there's a meeting going on and starts shaking George Kevin's hand and so on and uh, at one point Alan Smith sort of realised that he was in a room full of people who were trying to conduct some kind of business and regained his composure and sort of went right and it was the eyebrow you know that eyebrow yeah. he's always <laughs> doing that with the speeches right and he said uh, he was like oh and I, I just said to him uh, um yeah, you better not be reporting this subversive meeting back to your EU paymasters, right? And quick as a flash, before he could even really work out if that was human or not, he went, my paymasters are the people of Scotland. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> the way he does those speeches, the people of Scotland. Um, and then he started to smile because he kind of realized it was just a joke. Or whatever. <laughs> I, I, he, was, he was like a cat, reflexes of a cat. He was prepared to defend himself and the European Union at the drop of a hat. Any moment, if you come at that guy with a criticism of the European Union, he will smite you down. 
um, with that it's eyebrow. Quite, quite romantic though, because I've, I've, I mean, no, yeah, I don't think I've ever had a partner like that. <laughs> you could go to bat for me that quickly. You leave, you leave Robert alone. Um, yeah, um, but I've never bench pressed him, so we'll never know. So Alan Smith has. I, so I hear been in the papers recently, but I haven't followed this story at all, but I know you want to talk about it. So you're going to have to like zeitgeist me as we go. Like I need a kind of zeitgeist tape. And so over. So. Bye. Um, yeah. So, so last, last week, um, uh, a set of emails from uh, Alan Smith. It was kind of a set of internal emails um, within sort of the Sterling group of the SMP. Um, got got leaked. And essentially this was Alan Smith saying that all of the sort of culture war stuff that had been going on, the barring or blocking of, of Joanna Cherry, um, and you had James Dornan as well, that was all part of a, a move um, towards a form of identity, identity politics that had sort of stunted the SNP's strategy towards independence. That was his his view. And of course, you had out, a huge outcry about this because the feeling is well, one of the assumptions was that Alan Smith was part of this general trend, certainly part of this sort of centrist, socially progressive trend within the SNP. Um, but one of the bombshells was that he wanted to cut the number of seats um, on the SNP's NEC committee, um, uh, but also he wanted to essentially streamline a lot of the representation of so called sort of equality groups. Uh, and the response to this was that essentially he's become uh, part of the dirtbag left, I suppose. He's now part, officially part of the anti-work left. Um, and I, I just found it fascinating because of the fact that that certain section of the nationalist movement that look on him as sort of the most woke of woke um, still scorned him anyway when this leak came out, when he said that, you know, despite being um, a gay man, I think that... Uh, obsessions over stuff like GRA um, and certain ethnic focus on ethnic groups is bad for our strategy and independence make us seem, makes us seem um, obsessed. Um, and I couldn't tell whether this was sort of just a cynical ploy to win back favour with certain sections of the nationalist movement that are fed up with the, that form of identity politics. But I just think that the dynamics within the SNP when this letter was released was fascinating. Yeah, so, so this, this was my thought. Um... I mean, I'll only say it was leaked. Nothing stays unleaked in the SNP for long these days. But, you know, is it is it possible that he or his supporters leaked it themselves so that they could say, I'm above all this shit, right? I'm above all the, the culture war and so on. And at least in theory, he could have both wings covered. He's hard on the neoliberal centrist wing of the party, loves the EU. He's probably the figure in the party most associated with the European Union. Did he feel he needed to reach out to others in the party who are uh, fed up of the, call it what you will, the culture war or, or, <clears throat> or whatever? <clears throat> but I think it was also just a really interesting reminder that, um, like the way you sometimes hear it described is that like there's a, a, a really deeply meaningful culture war taking place inside the SNP between a sort of liberal wing and, a, and an actually conservative wing, right? These people are all liberals, right? Joanna Cherry, Alan Smith, uh, Alex Salmond, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, etc., 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 etc. These people's politics is all broadly very much the same. 
They have very similar orientation on society. They're all liberals. That, that, a lot of the culture, this is the thing, people think it's so deeply meaningful. A lot of these culture wars are arguments between different groups of liberals. That's, you know what I mean? Who's, whose motivations are partly ideological, but partly relate to ambitions, power, institutions, and, and, and so on. So it kind of it kind of bursts the bubble a bit, I think, the, the mystique around that as a as a as a meaningful conflict in the park. I mean, yeah, that's I I would tend to agree that something like that, which a leak like that in the short term, which will create a Twitter storm, but long term, really, it is quite beneficial, I think, to Alan Smith, given where things are going in the SNP. But, I mean, things that are, I, I compare this to like things that are leaked out of the Labour Party, which is like WhatsApp conversations of them all calling each other fat bitches and stuff, like, or mm. anti-Semites. Do you know what I mean? This is not a damaging leak in that mm. regard. Um, but this is, I think that it's a dead important point to make the, these are all liberals that are arguing amongst themselves and arguing different shades of liberalism. Like what I don't get about this, the so-called culture war within the SNP is that you can have someone like Joanna Cherry on the kind of the, the anti-woke side of the argument. And that's where she is as far as I understand. And you have people like Stuart MacDonald who will come to on the other and I think they're quite like kind of cartoonish figureheads for this. But the, Joanna Cherry like actually believes that you can legal your way into change. Do you know what I mean? Like apart from, it was when you said David, like that Alan Smith is probably the person most associated with the EU and the party. I think the other person that's most associated with the EU is Joanna Cherry. Cherry, good point, yeah. He's maybe looking. I mean? He's maybe looking to her, thinking she's stealing my EU bit. I'm gonna steal her, you know, anti woke bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, these people presumably are looking at each <laughs> other. Um, they're they're seeking to replace each other. You know, what I mean, I mean, like, like so in the next some point in the next two or three years, there's going to be a contest for perhaps sooner for for a leader of the party. Like they all have an eye to that that general situation um, and they'll change their their mood on questions like this as the moods changes uh, more generally um, but, but yeah. I think the, I think the responses to all these questions whether they're cultural or political really depends on on how how they want to position themselves on on the argument of, of strategies towards independence, you know, this, or perceived the perceived idea of who's who's got a path that's quickest towards independence. I mean, what's interesting about the the email is he he always he constantly frames it as um, this is getting in the way of independence or this is distracting us from independence, and it's it's really about you know fl outflanking each other to 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 project to project an idea that I'm the person who can actually. Um, can actually do something, you know, my politics is the politics of action rather than of institutionalism. You know, I'm more, more of an action candidate compared to someone like Nicola Sturgeon or Angus Roberts. Um, and it will be interesting to see going forward, like what more gimmicks um, these figureheads can do, you know, to try, to try and convince the movement or the party as a whole about 
their seriousness in that regard. They're about ultimately it's about the orientation of the independence question. This is why I think it might have been leaked by his own side, is that the key line in it, it was quite aggressive and I think you wouldn't send that internally. Mm-hmm. And that the key line in it was when he said, I care a great deal about equalities, but most of all, I care about independence or Scotland. Right. <laughs> and I thought that's you've almost delivered that like a like a conference speech. Right. That's the point where people applaud. So like yeah, I, there's quite a strong case to be made that you intended that line in particular to be circulated, which of course it, was, it then was by people. This is the thing, it was that line in particular was very widely circulated around social media that Alan Smith is ultimately an independence man, right? More than he is anything else. Mm. So he got what he wanted if he did indeed uh, do that. Um, but even if he didn't, you know, it, it's it's... It's, it's an image of himself that he wants projected. Um, he's always the person at SNP conferences, by the way, to do that, to make the rabble-rousing speech. And he's always making sure that he's the, seen as the person who does it. Um, and of course, he also um, you know, fought for Sterling to win a Tory marginal to prove other things that he could win over middle-class Scotland. That was basically the image he was trying to project. So he's clearly setting himself up for uh, leadership. And yeah, all other issues are obviously collateral damage. Um, But beyond that, none of these candidates actually represent uh, a distinctive message on the economy, on independence strategy, on anything like that, as far as I can tell. I think that that's that's the key point of this, is like a lot of these differences are actually... I mean, kind of meaningless because everybody, there is a consensus in the, in the SNP on the question of the European Union. For example, like in, in terms of the 2016 referendum, there was a consensus around that. There is a consensus that the European Union is a, you know, a, a force for good in the world and blah, blah, blah. When we've actually, <laughs> I mean, this week we've seen those pictures of refugees fleeing Syria the European Union's response to the refugee crisis is criminal, quite frankly. So there's there's a unanimous view on like the actual ideology, and there's always been a split in the SNP between the kind of the gradualist wing, like Nicola Sturgeon, and the more fundamentalist wing of the party, and um, who want you know. Who, who are driving that independence agenda. But I think that a lot of that stuff is now being played out in what are essentially bad faith arguments around the culture war. Like that's what, that's what we are seeing is that they're, they're playing out in, in those terms. Um, and the, 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 traditional, the traditional fundies though have been defeated. I mean, Sturgeon, Salmons, Cherry, Smith, all these people basically operate under the rubric of the, of the gradualist wing. Like they've all very much come from the the same genetic part of the of of the SNP, which is perhaps why the infight is so utterly furious, because you know it's that famous thing, the narcissism of small differences. When it's difficult for you to di- differentiate yourself from your political rivals, it gets really nasty, and you start blowing up small differences between you to to be more meaningful than they already are. That's that's a classic. Um, process, but this isn't an intelligent way to have conversations about policy, whether it's the, the GRA or anything. I remember when Cherry got ditched from uh, 
you know, she basically did get blocked from from standing um, in Edinburgh Central. And people said, "Oh, you know, don't don't let's not let's none of us pretend that this is about anything other than Salmon v Sturgeon and GRA stuff." Sturgeon's already ditched the GRA stuff. Like she already kicked it into the long grass as soon as she realized it would cause her any internal problems. So that's the level of commitment to any kind of serious political yeah. conversation around that issue. And um, don't get me wrong, there is like there is a serious political conversation to be had around it, but that's not what that's not what the conversation is. Right it's, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a bad faith argument, like mm. all over the place. And it's been used like in very tribal terms. I mean, like I suppose what a like a good example of like how smashed the 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 fundies got in the SNP is the treatment of Jim, Jim Sellers. Mm. Like I have a lot of respect for Jim and a lot of time for Jim. Like I think that he is a true public intellectual who is not afraid to make arguments in public, even when like he has changed his mind and I, I think that that's something that ultimately should be respected even if you disagree with him but the way that like Jim having a clear position on the EU and um, having his position around the approach to independence like he's been treated as if he is like a dodery old guy who's lost his marbles I mean it's totally disrespectful yeah same with um Jim Faley the former deputy leader of the party who's very opposed to the European Union which of course at one time was the standard viewpoint in the in the SNP mm. um yeah i think that that whole generation were written off as dinosaurs and um and so on um but yeah so so what you've been left is a very strangulated political culture inside the SNP um yeah, which which inevitably results in this in this uh, kind of behaviour. Um, but the most strangulated part to do a segue, if we're ready for a segue, segue is to uh, Sir McDonald's latest comments. How how did you segue? What's the link? Uh, how, I was going to segue by saying, oh yeah, <laughs> the, the most constricted part of the ideological world of the SNP is in fact represented by uh, Stuart MacDonald's um, fascination with the conspiracy in Scottish society in favour of uh, not only Putin's Russia, but also uh, Lukashenko, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Um, who was the leader of uh, Belarus. Uh, I didn't know that until about the last week. Oh yeah, he says he didn't know. He says he doesn't know about. Who <laughs> drinks Check out your pay slips. Yeah. Was it was it Lukashenko? As though I didn't know that. Right. <laughs> so this is the week where you know I would say Stuart Dahl finally lost it, but it's been gone for a long time. Um, he uh, he said that um, he tweeted his support for the. Um, protests against Lukashenko who's not I mean he's it's like a it's like a tin pot democracy he's been re-elected after 20 something years um and uh this huge protest and so on across the country um against this uh presumably dodgy election and um tweeted his support for those protests and then noted he said um I noticed that um 
uh, the Commonweal types have become strangely mute. Um, now, the thing is, I think, I think he probably meant me. And the reason I think he meant me was, like, <laughs> I don't know who else he could mean. Rob McAlpine, right, who is the director of Commonweal, isn't on social media, right? So it couldn't be him. Um, the we'll other guy he really we'll say he has a really healthy love of America, doesn't he? Robin. Yeah, he's not an he's not an authentic anti-American like you. No, he's he's not he's not a Stalinoid. He's he's just a kind of yeah. He's a, he's a kind of uh, run-of-the-mill social democrat. And the, but then but this is this is what I'm going to go and say. Like um, then there's um, poor old Craig DL, who is like the head of research for Commonweal, who is about the farthest thing from a tanky in the world. But then that that's what Commonweal is. Like most your average member of Commonweal is. Um, a Green, an SNP member, like an independent independent supporter, a CND veteran, uh, an environmentalist, someone who grows their own organic veg down on their allotment, right? And they're down on their allotment digging away, you know, getting the various courgettes and carrots and so on. And they have to find out via Twitter that they are now Stalinist supporters of Lukashenko in... Uh, in Belarus, um, based on an impression of me uh, and my politics. So the actual tweet reads, <clears throat> incredible events unfolding in Belarus, an uprising on the European continent against an authoritarian Soviet dictator led by women of courage and substance with their fellow citizens at their back. Commonweal types oddly mute. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, but got absolutely everything there hasn't it you know it's got, it's got everything yeah i think he he really lukashenko is quite quite an interesting foil for for mcdonald because he i mean you know he's, he's not he's not a soviet he's not a soviet dictator i mean he he was the last uh, deputy in the belarusian um uh, chamber to vote against the dissolution of the soviet union um and he has some sort of vague uh, soviet nostalgia that he harkens back to whenever there's a military parade um, around about nine, between 1994 and 1998, he was quite critical in making sure that sort of the economic transformation of Belarus didn't descend into what happened in Russia in sort of the early 90s. And that's sort of the limit of anything decent that he did. And then obviously it starts to go downhill from, from 97 um, onwards. But he's very useful for someone like McDonald because he represents absolutely everything, sort of the fantasies. Of, of what anything to the to the left of center must mean in terms of foreign policy. Um, this kind of hysterical idea that this guy really does represent Soviet power. And of course, this is, this is to do with the liberal imagination, right? You know, these, these guys just can't get over the fucking idea that the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> I mean, it's been gone, just fucking get over it, you know? You won, you know? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's that awful thing of like, you know, when you lose your worst enemy, that's, you know, you've hit rock, bo rock bottom because liberals didn't have something that kind of validated their identity after the Soviet Union had disappeared. So, yeah, he identifies them as a, as a Soviet for some reason. Um, he, uh, like, he kind of throws a little woke bomb in there with the fact that it's led by women. It is indeed, as far as I know, I think the, the, the candidate who was opposing Lukashenko was arrested in his wife um stood for the last uh, several weeks of the campaign um so obviously they, do you know what i mean in the imagination of the liberal right <laughs> 
what someone who doesn't want to be a member of NATO wants is what is behind you, Robert. Ultra masculine <laughs> marching in fucking disciplined order, right? And this throwback to like an industrial past where we've all got fucking massive biceps, proletarian biceps, right? Ultra masculine, authoritarian, you know what I mean? Nasty. Take it right in my fucking veins. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was all that and and yeah, I, it's it's totally bizarre, man. He lives in this in this bizarre little world. Do you know the thing about Stuart McDonald that I think is a bit sad, though, right? Is you know, people always say like um, it's a conspiracy, like he's been given money and he works for MI5 or or whatever it is, right? It's, that's nonsense. And the, but the reason I think that's nonsense is um, he's cheaper than that. He's easier than that. You can buy him easier than that most ms most mps when they go down to westminster at some point some lobbyist from ukraine or poland or the united states or israel or whatever will take you into a little side room where there's free canopies and free champagne and they will say to you our country is in grave danger of being destroyed by this evil hitler maniac and we want you to understand what's going on in our country and to speak up for us in Parliament, you know, Britain and this or that country have these close uh, uh, interests. For some reason, what goes on in my country is is of interest to your constituents on X, Y, Z reasons for oil prices or something, right? And most MPs <coughs> hang around for the, the freebies, but they, they kind of understand what's going on here, and they start to slowly edge their way out the door with a polite nod of the head and a smile. And every so often an MP just gets taken in by the machine and really believes that they are um, fighting for freedom in about 1957. Uh, that they, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, what was it called? Radio Free U Europe. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> but in 2020. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. way that you, the way you describe it, it's like, you remember when everyone got super taken in by that weird campaign, uh, Coney 2012? Yeah. <laughs> it, reminds me of, it reminds me of that, the way you're describing it, like someone going on the real like hard sell on a timeshare, <laughs> except that timeshare is like <laughs> the Ukrainian <laughs> government's political agenda or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I, that tweet, I mean, it's so rich in like everything that's wrong with the politics of Stuart McDonald's. Um, I, I mean, the yeah. liberals, liberals are obsessed with Russia. They need to have an enemy. Um, and we've seen that in the US and we see it here as well. Um, I also think that his red scare approach to all of this is like, I mean, it's off the shelf Americanism. And I, for one, I'm fed the fuck up of having America dominate our entire political discourse. So not only have they dominated our cultural discourse, um, they have dominated the speech patterns of Alan Smith with Scotland. Scotland. Like yeah. the, <laughs> that transatlantic accent must go. Um, but they now dominate like all political discourse like i mean you can see that very clearly with identity politics for a start um do you know what i mean and like particularly the conversations around things like black lives matter like where they've taken like a situation in the united states which is bound up in a particular history of slavery 
um, and its fallouts and the subsequent failure of society to address that in any way and it has been lifted and it has been plonked into Britain which has a completely different past um, around empire and colonialism like and I'm not what I'm not doing is saying like no there's no problem here it's just in America that's not what I'm saying what I'm saying is like pull the, down the, the all forms of cat void now <laughs> <laughs> did she just say pull down all forms of statues of cat voids okay yeah I mean if there is that's the only reason to get into politics right is to hope that one day someone will build a statue of you and then in 10 years time it will be pulled down by an angry mob isn't that everyone's <laughs> aspiration in life but yeah i suppose what i'm saying is like this idea of like the red scare um russia gate um like all of this kind of like american intrusion into political life is is honestly I think like one of the frontiers that the left in Scotland has to start dealing with like we actually have to start resisting Americanism and like when I have been reading about um like the the way that American politics is informing our uh, our culture and our discussions um particularly around identity politics but not limited to that either like in the trade union movement we routinely looked at american organizers and who are great at what they do um, and we've learned a lot of lessons from them but again we are taking like specific things that happen in the united states of america and we plonk them into our situation without any understanding of historical development and historical materialism and how nations are created and how the individual psyches and then the collective psyche within those nations is developed none of that what we do is we just go into the big shop called the usa and we take it off the shelf it's intellectually lazy and it's dangerous because let's be honest america is mental yeah i mean you, you can definitely have solidarity while while also recognizing peculiarities um which is why i've always had uh, uh some sort of, sort of sort of deep respect for um for sort of french cultural and political discourse in in many ways even even you know with all the sort of hangouts i have about 1968 um and, and some of the sort of the theorists from France at that period. One thing I can say about, about both the left and the right, for a very long time, probably until, until very recently, they had a very strong commitment to an idea of French exceptionalism that wasn't saying that, you know, French culture or French society is any more superior than anyone else, but that our context is our context. Um, and this kind of uh, ingratitude that, well, it's termed ingratitude. You know, there's this famous um, campaign advert that I think the French Communist Party sponsored where this uh, young French guy goes into a, a traditional cafe and he's got a bottle of Coca-Cola and he's a salesperson for Coke in, in between 1945 and 1950. And he gives all the old geezers in there a taste of the Coca-Cola and they spit it out uh, and kick him out the bar. And that's kind of a symbol of the, the French resistance um, to uh, American cultural colonialism. And I do feel very strongly about this. People often say, you can't use the phrase colonialism. It's insulting to, to people um, in the developing world. But I think that's absolutely nonsense. I think that it's not just the economic um, conquering of, of nations, it's also the, the cultural creep where you no longer have your own references for radical struggle. Like, you think about all the incredible things that have happened um, that represent workers' power, whether it's in Glasgow or Dundee or Edinburgh, well, not really Edinburgh, but 
um, actually, I'm going to get cancelled by my Edinburgh friends. Forget I said that, but by like all over Scotland, there's this huge heritage um, of of working class struggle. But that's no longer where you get your reference from because all economic and cultural power come come from Washington and New York and LA. Um, and I think that's almost it's almost inevitable when you do belong to the Anglosphere. I think uh, you know language is a huge barrier to that. You know, it's mm. it's a lot more difficult to 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 dominate a nation culturally if if the barrier between english speakers and russian speakers or mandarin speakers or french speakers language becomes that barrier that you can't necessarily penetrate and i don't know how we necessarily you know revert other than um cat goes around uh, uh beating anyone who's got a netflix subscription i don't know what's the solution I was muted there. Um, the problem is, is like I am, I, I am genuinely fascinated by America, so I do have like a lot of <laughs> uh, cultural influences in my life. Um, but I think like one of the most obvious examples outside of identity politics to me of like this kind of off the shelf American experience just being like adopted and the kind of intellectual laziness around that is with um, Boris Johnson. Like Boris Johnson is not Donald Trump. These are not the same because they're both like fat men with bad hair. People think, oh, like they're the same and they're both right wing. But I mean, like to me, I'm just like, if you're gonna understand them in particular terms, then we can understand them like in populist terms perhaps, but we can't say that, you know, you've got Trump, well, you know, we've got Johnson, we've got our own version of Trump and I hear it all the time. Do you know what I mean? And what the right is, the right often says that like, we have a problem with America because we have a problem with Trump. But that, like that in itself is lazy. It's not just a problem of the left, it's a problem of the right too. Um, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, even, that's me e fucked my visa chances. But even if you think about on just one register, how different American society is from, for example, British society, um, the, the, the world rankings for religious belief, I have America up there with like Iran and Pakistan. I think those might be two of the only countries where there's a higher degree of um, belief in, in God and church attendance and, and or religious house attendance and so on. People often forget that the United States has a system. The United States is not a secular country. Um, it's a country where the state pays for the church system, right? I mean, it's a funny one that I think because people hear it all the time. They think it's like Lassiter, like Francis, um, like it has this hyper secularist culture, nothing of the kind. Uh, the American state pours billions and billions and billions of dollars into the um, uh, the church system in America, and on top of that, the religious education system. So, the United States actually has a real culture war in the sense that you have very powerful, really socially conservative elites and genuinely socially liberal elites, you know, who are in sort of places like New York and Los Angeles and so on. In the, in the flyover country in between, um, between the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of top flight universities are hundreds and hundreds of Bible seminaries, 
hundreds and hundreds of theology colleges actually run by the evangelical right. So in, in America, the socially, socially conservative rich have real institutional power, real bases of power, which are hard to assail and which are supported by the state. That is an enormously different cultural backdrop to what you have in the United Kingdom, where it's overstated, of course, in tabloid newspapers and so on, but liberals do have very substantial institutional power, places like universities, the BBC, the judiciary, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's, of course, that's just one side of it. I mean, you could also look at the police, you know, a very, or the army, you know, or the monarchy. These are institutions where there's a very different state of affairs. But you could never replicate that same battle, cultural battle that exists in the United States somewhere like Britain. It makes no sense whatsoever. And then, of course, there's the, the, the issue uh, of slavery being a foundational experience of uh, the United States um, and the reality that a huge part of America's working class is, uh, is a second-class citizenry. And that's an enormous structural part of the country. And again, doesn't, it's not the same phenomenon here. And there's a constant attempt to, to, to import it. So the Black Lives Matter stuff made this so clear, right? And it also made so clear what some of the dangers are in this. I, you know, all of us here, I presume, you know, support, broadly support the, 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 that movement and its aims and, and so nope. forth. Nope. <laughs> but, nope. but when it's... You fucking assume shit. <laughs> <laughs> but when it's, when it's re-imported into, uh, in, into Britain, right, it meant that the focus, the strategic focus of the movement was essentially American. But you didn't have an understanding, for example, of, like the most violent part of European society towards black people is the Mediterranean Sea, the Europeans' hard border in the Mediterranean Sea, where 60,000 almost exclusively black and brown people have died in the last few years. I didn't see that mentioned once on demonstrations across Europe called Black Lives Matter, right? Because let's be honest, most of the people on those demonstrations have a very uncritical attitude towards the European Union. Now, that is a classic example of where if you don't have an eye to your own national and geographical context, you, your, your social movement starts to exist half in a fantasy world that's not relating to the real problems that exist in your society. But sorry, Robert, go on. You were going to tell me <laughs> you hate Black Lives Matter. <laughs> No, I mean, I, the, the, last, the last few weeks, months has been really torturous because you're in, you're in this weird position where you kind of feel like you're only useful if you come out and support a position because it makes, because it makes other people feel good about themselves. You know, it's the politics of, right, of righteousness. It's like, I want to show that I'm in favour of a position because it's the, 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 the socially liberal position is the dominant position. Uh, if I show that I'm in favour of this, everyone will know that I'm a good person, that everyone will know my politics is good, and that equals me being a, a good and wholesome person. And um, I just have no time with with a politics of of gesture and a politics of righteousness. I mean, I I really have a deep contempt for a movement and a discourse which has totally obscured the nature of the way class works and the way in which it cuts across racial lines. Okay. Now it's true that. 
if you are from the black bourgeoisie, if you're black and upper class, you will encounter um, a certain degree of discrimination, okay? But it's ignored that that can be assuaged if you have money and you have connections. So I'll give you an example. Um, you had the editor of British Vogue, um, Edward Affinenfu. Um, he wrote an open letter and then I did a tweet about how he went, was going to work and they wouldn't let him in the front door of the building because the security guard was like, you don't work here. I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into the validity of the claim, but that's essentially what the claim happened. Okay. Now, it was interesting because my, my dad um, ran away from Nigeria to escape the, escape the civil war there. And I've got an ear for names. And so I thought, huh, this is really interesting. Um, and I looked him up. And in every article, it said, oh, this likely lad from Ladbroke Grove, um, a story of, of a black working class gay man who rose up, pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And then I researched the family name and I found out that in one article, uh, we know that his father was um, a colonel in the uh, Ghanaian army. And then I found out that his entire family were part of a military hunter that essentially lost the power struggle. And that's why he ended up in London. Okay. And that much of that financing of him coming to London was based off cleaving natural resources. That's often how it goes. Okay. And so you've got this entire narrative where Black Lives Matter has been used to justify the social climbing of a particular part of the black middle class, be they immigrants or not and it jars with me because you know I, I obviously work in education in other aspects of my life and I see people from all ethnic backgrounds in desperate desperate poverty and totally disarmed without any way of garnering collective action and they must be told that if they don't wholeheartedly support this zeitgeist that there is something perverse with them. That if you mention that the dynamic of class is the most important thing, then you know you are somehow suspect. And so I, I just can't get behind the whole thing in any form, in any kind of expression. Because for me, it's just like it has to be class. Because there's so many of these carpetbaggers who just will attach themselves onto the movement. You know, like I, I remember getting a DM from someone who I know um is connected is connected to sort of a bp their, their uncle's a bp executive who works in nigeria and then they were saying oh well, do you do you know any sort of uh black journalist writers and artists who would like to do this thing where you get like 800 pound an article and like i know the kind of people who are going to get this opportunity and it's not going to be people off an estate in south london or wherever it's going to be people who have connections but who are able to use the, their ethnic background as a way of socially climbing. And that's definitely something that's been important from the US. And I, I fucking hate it, you know. Like I'm very conscious of it, like in terms of myself, like, you know, my family, most of my family are like working class Windrush Caribbeans. Most of them were, you know, worked for as engineers or, or tube drivers for British Rail, train drivers for British Rail. Um, but I'm not working class. Like I'm, I'm, I'm as bourgeois a cunt as, as, as you can find, you know, and I don't feel like um, impressing my particular ethno-narcissistic identity on people as a gimmick to socially climb is, is at all an, effect, an acceptable way of, of conducting 
politics or being a political actor. That's my rant over. Um, what do you think in relation, we were going to discuss, uh, what do you call them? Um, is it BME lists or whatever? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, this is sort of another another feature of, of a party system that's, um, again, being culturally colonised from, from America. I mean, you've got really the attempt to yeah, uh, sort of, you know, you've got in, in America, you've got in the Democratic Party, you've got a black congressional caucus, where if you are a Democratic or a Republican senator or a representative of the House of Representatives, you can form into a club with other black representatives. Um, and, you know, they say this is due to representation and to make sure you have lawmakers that are a lot more diverse. But what it really is, is about creating power bases so you can have um, a much more honed black political elite. Um, and the, the prime example of this is, is Jim Clyburn, who is very much hated by you know, Bernie supporters, didn't like him a lot because he supposedly swung the uh, primary in favour of Biden. Um, but what they failed to realise is his effectiveness. Like that's, that's a feature, that's not a bug. The, the purpose of having um, BME shortlists is to create a political class, um, an elite that are essentially loyal to the political machine or to, to, or to your class. And you can funnel patronage favours through them. And so I, I think the thing's a terrible idea. I think it's the worst thing that's ever been imported. Again, obscure class. Because, you know, people, the people who, I, I remember people saying to me, um, would say to me, oh, you should, you should run for something or you should do this. And of course they would, because, you know, they, they're not going to be able to, to be saying that to people who are working class regardless of their race. You know, the, the people who will go for the political office are the middle classes. They, we, they are political actors. They wield political power. Yeah, and I, this is interesting to me because I think sometimes the left has a very uncritical view in thinking that um, everything that's gone on in kind of left-wing language, left-wing discourse, left-wing academia in the last 30 or 40 years has been an unsullied path of improvement, where 40 years ago you had grunting trade unionists you know, with brains like peanuts who just went around sort of thinking it's about workers versus bosses. Now we have well-rounded leftists who understand, you know, that, that it's more complicated than that and that there's like, you know, um, there are questions of oppression and, and so on. As though those are ideas that didn't exist in the old left, right? Which is wrong um, anyway. But we forget that, that that change, though it may have brought some progress has also moved in tandem with a general process of retreat for the left and professionalization of left-wing um, discourse in particular. So like that, that to me is part of what some political scientists call cartelization. So at, after the 1945 Labour government, you had a Labour party which could say to working class communities up and down the country, um, we have de delivered tangible stuff for you. We've delivered full employment, we've delivered the NHS, we've delivered the welfare state, et cetera, et cetera. Now, well, you know, I'm not someone who's a fan of labourism, past or present, right? But it, that's a real material basis. That's a real material relationship that you can have with the majority class in society. And in the decades since, we've seen a steady erosion and decline of that base of support because the Labour Party has stopped being a reformist party that achieves reforms, right? Um, 
And in place of that class allegiance, in place of that class base, you have the process of cartelization where center-left parties become um, partly communitarian parties, parties for the young, parties for women, parties for um, uh, various minority communities of all kinds. And this isn't just like, I mean, Bill Clinton said as much. He said you need to build a coalition of these various different constituencies, stitch them all together, uh, and you have a majority of the country, right? You can find the majority of the country without purely basing your politics on the majority labouring um, population. Um, you might remember a trade unionist got chewed out for, for pointing this out a couple of years ago. It was, um, what's his name, Dempsey. Um, Eddie Dempsey. Eddie Dempsey said as much. He said that there's, there's a version of left-wing politics that says you bring all these groups together and we have a left-wing majority. The problem with this is, and he was, he was right, but this was, we were told this was Nazism or something. The problem is that the way that social democratic parties build those coalitions is not by opposing oppression or by undermining structural oppression in society or something. They do it by appealing to business elites at the top of each of those community groupings, right? And that, for example, is how the Labour Party has traditionally built its support, for example, in the Pakistani community, both in Britain, uh, both in England and in Scotland. Um, they have gone to a business figure in the community uh, and they build a coalition around him or they tell him to build a coalition around his influence um, in the community. Now, um, that's something quite different from you know, um, a left-wing politics which has uh, synthesized an understanding of needing to oppose oppression as well as class exploitation. That's a very, very different thing. And it leads to a very cynical and quite brutal politics, ultimately. And that's, I think that's ultimately what, it's interesting to me that people haven't drawn more conclusions from the defeat of Bernie Sanders by that machine. You know, it's true, of course, that, um, and, but, you know, people say, well, but those um, black civil rights legacy networks that exist in the Democratic Party organized that through things like the churches. Um, they don't represent um, the, the wider black community. Of course, that's true. But they've never represented that community. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and a lot of these people who's, who say they represent this or that caucus, this or that chunk, this or that community inside these political parties, they're speaking, as you say, for like upper middle class or small business interests in those communities. I mean, I find this chat really interesting um, having had, you know, very public positions about feminism um, and about the feminist movement, um, which, you know, as a strand of like that kind of identity politics, um, I find, honestly, I find it a ripoff. It's a total, total swizz because what no one ever talks about is the question of agency. No one ever mentions agency and who they, like agents for change are anymore. And if you, if you talk about class in the context of gender politics in the mainstream, like you will become, you will be accused of being class reductionist or old left. Like that's, that's, that's my experience. And what I've discovered is that, you know, none, none of the liberals will argue with the experience, right? Because that's apparently how we conduct politics these days. So like when you bring class agency and, you know, into the discussion, 
then you are faced with these accusations. But then in the mainstream, all you are bombarded with, um, you know, is as a woman, I have no agency. And that's what that's what I'm told, like, and that's what's reinforced every day by the liberal discourse of like the Me Too movement, for example, is that I have no agency in, in these discussions. I have no agency in contexts with um with men who are in like positions of power and authority, that it's reinforced time and time again that women are victims, 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 and that's all I hear. And it drives me to distraction because like that is has to be the, the base for the left is the rejection of a compulsory victimhood that seems to be out there. And in order to be a virtuous actor in the like left liberal political sphere, you have to basically say, yes, I was a victim too. And regardless of who I am, where like my life story, which is of zero importance to my politics, like I now recognize this, it's taken me a long time to recognize this, is that like I reject victimhood because it gives me no agency so stop telling me that I am a victim of these things like yes I will like I, I still do call myself a feminist but and what I, I want to be clear that like I'm not just talking about co-option like I, I feel like I've made that argument many times and um, that that like there, there there is a co-option of feminism but I think that it's more to do with um what's the word I'm looking for? Commodification of feminism. So what has happened is that it's become a currency. So at some point, like during the women's liberation movement, like it was a dangerous thing to say you were a feminist, right? Because saying you were a feminist meant that you would, you would not in any way get ahead, right? You would never get promoted. You would never get a job. You wouldn't get a fucking boyfriend, right? Now, if I say I'm a feminist, then like there's currency there, right? Yeah. And what happens is that the language of feminism or the language of like black liberation or the language of LGBT liberation, they, they have become currency because they are built into neoliberalism and they have become marketized and they are forms of currency which you can pay if you know the language. So if you have cultural or educational capital in any sense, if you're a member of the professional managerial class, which I would probably put all of us in, given that we all have like education to have a high level, these kind of things, it's important to know our place within like that kind of class strata. But if you know the language and you know how to use it, then you can use it to get ahead. Let's just say that because that's true. I don't, I don't see any, like I see nodding heads and not this. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's people listening to this who viciously disagree with this, but I, but it's my experience, guys. I, so I, I remember. I mean, I, I, I never told David this, but I, I got a very, very odd offer from the Scotsman um, who, who wanted me to write about the very painful experience um, of being in the Common Space Office and having David reject my offer of, of jerk chicken and jolly rice, and he wouldn't take it. it was too spicy. <laughs> I, I felt the burning, the burning fire impression at that moment. Uh, and when the Scotsman got in touch with me to write that article, I wavered, but I stayed true and I said I wasn't going to shoot David, I wasn't going to hang him out there to write. <laughs> yeah. Just how awful pretty, was it? <laughs> could have made a pretty penny from that. Yeah, yeah it's that's so weird about it, like especially when, when people know that you've written things and you, you, come, you do come from a certain community and again, I'm very sceptical about the idea of 
a community because again that leads on from your point david about of the way patronage um, networks work and not being able to transfer from america to the uk because you know people talk about the black community or the asian community as if these are cohesive groups that all think the same have similar histories um have similar sort of founding myths or or, or foundational politics um but I, I remember getting getting offers from people and then it just being very very silent because people kind of got the feeling that i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna gonna want to progress or fire out writing just because it was part of this whole movement to be to be a victim it's like when you want to be a political actor nobody wants to know when you want yeah. to have politics simply done to you then then that that passivity is celebrated at every corner yeah, I mean, I think that these are probably quite uh, bold things for us to say, but I'm, I am glad we're saying them and I'm not going to edit them out. I mean, certainly it's my experience of like, uh, I've been asked many times to come and speak at things as a feminist. Um, and sometimes I have said yes. And over the last two years, I have said no. Um, and that's not, like I said, because I don't identify as a feminist or I don't, like, have feminist views. But because, like, I actually don't think this is useful right now. I, do, I don't think this is I don't think that feeding into a mainstream discourse, which says, as long as we have more women in positions of power, then that's, that goes some way to solving the problem. Because I actually don't know if it does. I, I, and I can't, like with all kind of my faculties and with integrity intact, say that it might, because I don't think, I just don't think it does. I think it's rearranging the, the deck chairs. I think it's window dressing for a system which is in crisis. Um, I think it's probably also <laughs> exacerbating the crisis um, and I just want it to mm, stop. Yeah, this one point I've always wanted to to say, but I've never had a chance to to say it is um again sort of referring back to America, but I think it is actually relevant in a in a tiny way here. When you encourage people to think of themselves as part of a an, an ethno based struggle, um, I mean I, I had I had one sort of acquaintance, you know I can't believe that we're seeing all these sort of uh, white national red pill guys is coming out of all the woodwork and I'm like oh that's interesting when you encourage people to think along sectarian lines they act sectarian that's bizarre I never would have thought that would have been the outcome of of doing that and the the the, the left is really sort of playing around with through I think cowardice um is playing around with this formula which assumes that specifically in the American example that you're going to have a politics of empowerment and mobilization through ethnic pride and wishing that nothing's going to happen on the other side. You know, this is politics of, of, of guilt, of saying that the only way in which you can have a coalition is essentially if um, white leftists just act like they're guilty the whole fucking time. You know, it's like walking out of, of a showing of 12 Years a Slave and like all these white people are just holding open the door for you. It's fucking awkward, man. That actually literally did happen to me, seriously. I, it was weird. I've had that feeling for a couple of months. It's like people just hold, held open the door to me. These two women who like looked like they were part of a Methodist congregation who just smiled at me. Everyone was smiling at me. It was really weird. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm dying of cringe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I hadn't even really thought of that angle of sort of like, um, because what we have also seen, and in, in particularly in the United States in the last few months, is because because people are always looking to escalate the the insights into what racism is. Um, I think this is partly because of the kind of impotency of a lot of this uh, this sort of politics. People keep wanting to sort of escalate. Uh, make more and more radical our insights into into the nature of racism. You've seen, for example, lots of really essentialist arguments appearing. Like there was that weird, um, it's a, a, a kind of uh, exhibition of white culture. Do you see this thing? And it was someone, it was like an organization drew up a graph of things that were white culture and shouldn't be culturally assumed as universal, right? But they were things like, working to deadlines, um, a, a preponderance for the written word, uh, an emphasis on the nuclear family unit, right? Because these things are all kind of like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant traits, right? But that, like, you can easily end up in this really weird place where, um, with this kind of discourse, where you say, no, these, these racial distinctions are deeply meaningful, and it's racist for you to deny it, right? Like, race says a lot about who you are and if you deny that you're just one of these people who says they are colorblind or whatever you know there are real limits to this this concept of race and traditionally concepts like class were supposed to expose those limits not just not just be yet another identity alongside a different identity we're supposed to actually be undermining the, that identitarian basis to some extent I mean, I think the problem with that, though, is that class has become an identity as well. Like, class has been, like... Classism. Class... See, I, I said this, I shared this with you. Anytime someone says classism on Twitter, I mute them. Like, if I, if, like, if I follow them. Like, I'm just... I, I'm not interested in talking about classism. Like, so class has become an identity. And what that's done is, like, it's that kind of... Um, it's allowed people to who are in positions of power, who have um, who have resources, who have capital, to talk about being working class, to say, oh, "Well, you see, I'm I'm working class. I'm from a working class background. I grew up in a, a council estate. Um, I listen to Oasis." You're making classism um, right there. And and tea <laughs> uh, tea with too much milk and sugar, something like that. I don't know. Um, and what that does is like it makes people think that because they are eating an avocado and a cracker that they're somehow not fucking working class it's so destructive and class has become an identity that people can like assume and step into rather than seeing it for what it is which is like the agent of political change as a like relational like concept as a relational force as like this class conflict has like determining history and like i mean we now just instead talk about classism mm, i know and by the way like i'm just gonna say briefly do you know when there was that debate about food poverty recently it seems to turn up on twitter about every six months on a cycle the number of people i saw talking about their harrowing experiences of childhood food poverty right to try and furnish their working class credentials and you're sitting there looking at them thinking, I write, man. I write. And but it's that's it's gotten grim when it's gotten to that extent. Yeah, when and why but why do people think that matters? And why do people think that sharing that those personal anecdotes 
which whether they're true or not, I don't really, um, that's not what I'm investigating here. It's like, why do people think that saying, well, I had food poverty too? Why because has that become a currency? Yeah, that's political, you know. Uh, you, are, you are your politics, rather than being a political actor that can analyse separate. Uh, do you know that pa the, the personal is political? Do you know what else is political? The political. The political is the political, is the fucking <laughs> slogan that we need the 21st century left. The political is political. Done. I'm in. Um, thank you so much, Robert, for joining us. Um, we'll wrap it up so you could get your takeaway. Thanks. Even, even, <laughs> the, even the thought of it is like making me, making me peckish. Oh, Mele, I can smell the Americanism. Just uh. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, it's a, it's a, a chain, a, a large high street chain pizza, isn't it? Yeah, we won't give them any free advertising. We won't give them any free advertising because you will get cancelled because I think they're like backed by Christian fundamentalists because they're in America. <laughs> That's where like all money comes from. It's like God pizza, Jesus pizza, whatever. Um, I'm sorry, God. Um. Okay, so I think my matcha is now kicking in. So I'm going to say goodbye and thank you again for joining us. And you can subscribe to the pod on contour.co.uk. You can give us money there as well. Um, and yeah, that's us. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. See you soon. See you. Magic. I'll stop recording. <laughs>